one, and it is my pleasure to welcome Annie Jacobson back to this program to talk about her newest work, Operation Paperclip. Annie Jacobson, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here. Tell us a little bit about the evolution of the idea within the U.S. government to recruit these German scientists in the waning days and after the war, really how the idea started to evolve and how it became Operation Paperclip. Well, you know, your summary of it in the beginning was just terrific there because you really hit upon this very important idea about what is in the name of national security, what does that mean, who's in charge of it, and how does it unfold. And the way that Paperclip unfolded was in the last days of the falling Reich, and as we were capturing the Nazi war criminals, we were also capturing these German scientists. And this idea took hold, what is it that we need to know from these scientists about the weapons, the giant, huge arsenal of weapons that Hitler had created and almost won the war with. And there began Operation Paperclip, this race to get that forbidden knowledge. What originally started out as just getting the knowledge and moving on became this vast program to get the knowledge, put those Nazis to work, keep that knowledge secret, and that is what Operation Paperclip spawned. Where did this idea originate? At how high in the levels of government did the idea of beginning to use these German scientists, where did that originate from? Well, I begin the book in November of 1944, just a few months after the Normandy landings. And you have a secret unit of American scientific officers. They are called Operation Alsace. It's an offshoot of the Manhattan Project. And these scientists are tasked with the top secret mission of locating Hitler's top weapons. And they worked in what was called ABC warfare. It stood for atomic, biological, and chemical weapons. And the leader of the Alsace mission was a particle physicist named Samuel Goodsmith. And he determined very quickly, actually in Strasbourg, France, which the Reich had controlled, um, determined that the atomic program was sort of in the tank, so to speak. And that's because Hitler had once told Albert Speer, his minister of armaments, that uh, atomic energy was Jewish science. So he, was, he wasn't much interested in it, lucky for us. As for biological and chemical weapons, that was a different story. And the scientist, the American scientist Samuel Goodsmith, quickly learned with his team uncovering these kind of secret papers by candlelight in the apartment of a, of a, scient- a, a Nazi scientist who had fled. Goodsmith discovered these first papers that showed that the Reich had a biological weapons program and that they were experimenting their vaccine research on humans. And that instigated a giant list for the biological weapons makers. And then, of course, the chemical weapons makers followed, and the rocket makers were already on the radar. And the the web of this search for science spread out. Where, if at all, were there ever discussions within the halls of government about what the moral implications of this might be? You know, well, that's just a perfect question, and I really looked for that as a journalist because that's exactly what, you know, the human nature wants to to ask. Like, we just won this war against this horrible Nazi war machine. How did we so quickly, or did we so quickly, 
decide <clears throat> that it was okay to get these scientists. And you, uh, you see from examination of the papers of the original documents right around sort of May of 1945 that there are two very different sides. There are many generals in the Pentagon who do not want to have anything to do with German scientists, i.e. Nazi scientists, mindful of the fact that anyone who stayed worked for Hitler. I, Albert Einstein is a great example of someone who left um, and did not, you know, chose not to work for the Nazis. And so there begins this uncomfortable read of the documents where you see many other generals saying, because we're talking about really high upper echelons of the Pentagon, saying, you know, we need these scientists and we're going to get them. And then there's the gray area of, well, let's make it a temporary program. Let's get their knowledge and then let's send them home. And then you see that slippery slope and that moral compromise begin to happen where suddenly the German scientists aren't happy and they want their wives and their children and maybe even their mother-in-law. And so, lo and behold, this program becomes about you know, giving the Nazi scientists what they want and keeping the program more and more secret from the American public. One of the things that's so remarkable about it is that there, the Pentagon didn't seem to make a particularly interesting distinction between those that had been involved in medical research and biochemical research and engaged in some of these horrible practices in these areas and those that had worked on the rockets and some of the other weaponry. There didn't seem to be any difference in terms of the moral suasion on this as far as the Pentagon was concerned. Well, you're right. And, and you know, the, in this situation, it was the ends justify the means. And um, the idea that the rocket scientists, I must say, were somehow benign is simply not true. I mean, the documents that have come to light uh, which NASA helped to suppress for many, many decades, show that from Warner Von Braun to General Dornberger, Arthur Rudolph, George Rickey, these, these you know, pioneers of the American rocket program were in fact absolutely implicit in Nazi war crimes because they all worked in the underground tunnel factory, the slave labor tunnels, at Nordhausen, where those rockets were assembled. And documents now show us that Warner Von Braun himself went to the Buchenwald concentration camp and hand-picked slaves to come work for them. Half of the slaves died in those tunnels. And in fact, you talk about how the Army went out of its way to cover up Von Braun's SS membership. Yes, you know, there's. It, it's really a deeply troubling element of Operation Paperclip is to what lengths uh, the upper echelons of the, it was actually, the program was run by the Joint Chiefs of Staff, by a sub-program called the JOA, the Joint Intelligence Objectives Agency. And it's really troubling to see the coaching that went on. In other words, when Von Braun was becoming, you know, a major celebrity in the world of space travel. This is in the 1960s, and man is getting closer and closer to the moon, and Von Braun is having his photograph taken with presidents. NASA would coach him and say, because every now and then this issue would come up, you know, wait a minute, we have information that you may have been an SS officer, which he was. 
And his answer was exactly what he had been told to say, which is, I have been fully investigated by the U.S. military. And he had. It's just that what they knew was very different than what they were willing to say. What did the White House know? Well, that's a tricky question. You know, uh, Truman approved the program. Remember, Paperclip was a classified military program, but it also had a benign public face. So there was a, a movement to present these German scientists to the United States population, you know, as good Germans. And photographs would be taken of them and printed in Life magazine and so on and so forth with, you know, them in their little coats and smiling and giving lectures and writing, you know, equations on chalkboards. And there was always this idea propagated that they, you know, were sort of somehow lurking about in the Third Reich, hoping not to be arrested, which is so far from the truth. It's apocryphal. But, you know, this idea that they were benign was incredibly important to push forward. Why didn't more of this come out at Nuremberg? Oh, well, that's a great question, and I, and I look at and, and write about the Nuremberg trials at length in the book, because, you know, it was just astonishing to me how quickly the world, not just the American, you know, public, but the world lost interest in the war in Nazi war criminals almost immediately after the original trial at Nuremberg where all of the top Nazi brass were tried and most of most of whom were hung hanged um but there was a there were subsequent trials and you know the international community kind of moved on and lost interest and one of the great tragedies of Paperclip, I believe, is that one of those convicted at Nuremberg, his name is Dr. Otto Ambrose, he was Hitler's famous favorite chemist. And the A in sarin gas, which is, of course, in the news today as being part of Syria's arsenal of chemical weapons, so the A in sarin gas stands for Dr. Otto Ambrose. And he also ran a slave labor factory at Auschwitz. So he was tried and convicted at Nuremberg, convicted of mass murder and slavery, went to prison, and then was granted clemency by the U.S. High Commissioner John McCoy and given a paperclip contract with the U.S. Department of Energy. There was also Fritz Hoffman, who was working in the same area, who was involved in the Third Reich's effort with nerve agents that became part of a, a, became a CIA chemist. Yes, and Hoffman's story is particularly unnerving, I think, because Hoffman was one of the only German scientists, and this is in my read of the, of the 21 scientists that I really focused on and, and examined all of, you know, everything that I could find from the archives in Germany to the National Archives to personal papers and whatnot. Fritz Hoffman, although he was working on the nerve agent program for the Nazis, absolutely, he was allegedly anti-Nazi, and he actually had a paper with him when he was captured from a leading diplomat, a U.S. diplomat, saying he, Fritz Hoffman is, an, you know, is against the Nazi parties. It's very mysterious and confusing. However, when Hoffman came here, he was a brilliant chemist, and he began working 
for the CIA, and he and he sort of then took like a very dark-hearted turn and began to become the lead chemist for the CIA's assassination by poison program. So he was the person who searched the globe for, you know, uh, poison from you know rare frogs in the Brazilian rainforest and curare and weaponizing those poisons from the natural world for the CIA to to use in assassinations. I mean, he was very much a James Bondian kind of character. Absolutely. I mean, there, there's an element of sort of cloak and dagger to so much of Operation Paperclip because you have so many different schemes being run by so many different organizations. You know, what started out as a as a sort of strict military program, let's use the rockets as the best example, okay, Army Ordnance, sort of transformed into this giant cross-service, cross-agency um, intelligence and weapons program. For example, the CIA began to work. You know, remember the CIA was created in 1947, so Paperclip started before the CIA was was started. But shortly thereafter, the C. You know, I found these documents which show the CIA requesting from the Joint Chiefs a list of all the Paperclip scientists that not only that are in the United States but that are being pursued still in Germany. And then they, so the CIA now has that list, and then the CIA begins poaching the German scientists in Germany, you know, out from under the Joint Chiefs. And you see this incredible drama unfold as they're both vying for the same sources. The CIA wants to use these guys for intelligence gathering purposes. The, the Joint Chiefs wants to use them for weapons research. What did the Soviets know with respect to, A, what the U.S. was doing with regard to Operation Paperclip, and B, in terms of the choices the Soviets were making with respect to the German scientists that they had taken? Well, that's a great question, and, you know, you, you raise that in your introduction, which is so, so important to this whole concept, which is, could we, America, have had a successful program uh, you know, after the war, that, that, or would the Soviets have somehow beaten us because, you know, we didn't use these, these Nazi scientists. And sadly, I must say that my read on it is that science is science, and good science will be pushed by whoever is, is given the opportunity to push that science. And so did we need Hitler's scientists? I personally do not think so. And if you look at the Soviet program, that essentially backs up that argument, and here's why. The Soviets loathed the Germans. And so while the Soviets had their own version of Operation Paperclip, and they captured many German scientists for themselves, including, you know, literally thousands of rocket scientists, as opposed to our 115. But when the Soviet rocket, when the, the German rocket scientists went over to the Soviet Union, the Soviets sort of treated them as second-class citizens. They did not feel that their their intellect and their know-how was that great, and essentially sort of squeezed them from information, kept them from knowing the, the top knowledge that Sergei Korolyov, who was the, the head of the Soviet rocket program, was working on. And then they sent all the Germans home, at which point the CIA stepped in, interviewed all those German scientists who had been in Soviet Russia and found very little out about the Soviet rocket program because 
the Soviets didn't really treat the Germans very seriously. As you did your, your reporting on this, how important was it to keep in mind the context of the time, the critical nature of the Cold War at the time, the battle with the Soviets, as we're talking about, and kind of the cloak-and-dagger nature of what was going on in Europe, in Berlin, and, and various other places around the world? Well, it's, it's very important. And when the first knowledge of the paperclip program emerged in the late 1980s and the early 1990s, there were many individuals in government who said exactly that in a, in a sort of, and not patronizing way, but they said, look, you cannot stand on a pedestal and look back and right. say, you know, what we did had no effect. This, we won the Cold War. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's important to keep that in mind and hold that as an idea. And I certainly write about, you know, what is happening in, in, in the geopolitical world as paperclip is moving forward and they, and what was at stake. And the idea behind everything was, of course, thermonuclear war. However, from a moral standpoint, it's, impossible to say that paperclip was a good idea. And when you're looking at the, you know, what, what, what was sacrificed to win World War II and how important that was, that victory was for the nation, and what great standing that gave the nation, it's so unfortunate to think that we would have sort of betrayed our own ideals. And again, this is my opinion after doing all this research and reporting, but that we would somehow make that moral compromise, make that deal with the devil and say, well, now let's just kind of give these Nazi war criminals a state-sponsored pardon because we have to win the next war. There's something deeply unsettling about that. In many ways, though, it is tied to, maybe not explicitly, but it is somehow tied to the decision to use nuclear weapons to end the war. There was this ends justify the means mentality with respect to to the end of the war, with respect to the beginnings of the Cold War, and somehow this all seems caught up in the same moral conundrum. Yes and no. I mean, I would tend to take the position that the use of nuclear weapons is is a separate issue because there were no indications that the Japanese were going to surrender, certainly from my read of history. So I, you know, you're talking about a, a, a war, go, a, an active war going on and that need to end that war to save American lives no matter what. And so I don't, I don't really, I think there ends the war and now you have peace. And troubling to me in terms of the bigger picture of the military-industrial complex is this idea that, well, now we have peace, but no matter what, we have to prepare for the next war, which is its own chicken and an egg, because we know that, unfortunately, war is, war is inherent in world, the cycle of, of, of governments in the world. But it is just, you know, I think that's why Paperclip is so interesting, because I, I really believe that for as many questions as you get answered as you read along, new questions arise in one's own mind about, how, about the ways of the world. To what extent did you talk to any contemporary figures in government, in the Pentagon, 
about this, and what kind of reaction did you get? Well, certainly the most troubling interview that I did, um, and I talked to many, many government officials, and I actually spoke to living family members of some of the high-ranking members of the Third Reich who came to America as part of Paperclip. And, but the, the contemporary official who was really left me unnerved was a conversation that I had with the um, president of the National Space Club about an award that they give out annually called the Dr. Kurt Debus Award. And Kurt Debus was the first director of the John F. Kennedy Space Center. And he was a member of Von Braun's team. And in my research, I also found out that not only did Debus wear his SS uniform to work, which clearly makes him a Nazi ideologue, an ardent Nazi. That was not a requirement. That was a choice. But not only that, during the war, I discovered that Debus had maliciously turned over his superior for making anti-Hitler remarks. And that um, meant that the Gestapo got involved and the superior went to prison. And in Debus's foreign scientist case file, which was declassified and, and I examined at length, you can see these conversations between those who are recruiting for Operation Paperclip and those who are working in the Pentagon saying, okay, get this guy over here. And the recruiters were sending memos. The recruiters in Germany were sending <clears throat> memos back to the Pentagon saying, we can't hire this guy, Davis. He is an ardent Nazi, and he maliciously turned over a colleague to the Gestapo. And they examined the whole trial records, and Debus had actually taken it upon himself to turn this guy in. It was not like, you know, it was a group effort. And yet, anyway, Debus came, and, you know, he became a very a leading figure, and he's still honored today. And so I asked the director of the, of the program, what do you say to people when they say, but wait a minute, Kurt Debus was an ardent Nazi? And he said to me, no one has ever asked me that question. And then he said, simple as it is, Kurt Debus is an honored American. I think that's really too bad. Andy Jacobson, the book is Operation Paperclip, the secret intelligence program that brought Nazi scientists to America. Andy, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 